Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode is supported by Leslie Massey, a farmer's insurance agent here in Amarillo. Now, you may have heard Leslie interviewed on this podcast back in September of this year. She's known for her personal customer service, going the extra mile to walk customers through the claims process. Her agency also gets recognized for community involvement. Leslie works really hard to build relationships with clients, with their families, their businesses, and more. And I know this because the magazine I co-own, Brick and Elm, is one of her insurance clients. To learn more, contact Farmers Insurance Agent Leslie Massey at 806-352-7388. That's 806-352-7388. Today's guest is Andy Marshall. Andy is the president and CEO at First Bank Southwest, a family-owned regional bank that dates back to 1907 and has its headquarters here in Amarillo. Andy is relatively new to this area. He came to First Bank Southwest from another bank in Tulsa, Oklahoma back in 2017, so I was eager to hear his perspective on Amarillo in that capacity as a newcomer. But Andy has a really interesting story that starts way before he got into banking in the first place because he's an Air Force and Army veteran. And in the late 1980s, at the height of the Cold War, he was based in Germany and oversaw day-to-day border operations and intelligence along more than 100 miles of the Iron Curtain. So among other things, we talk about that. We talk about how that military experience still informs his leadership role today in banking. Uh, There's a lot of stuff to cover. Here's Andy Marshall. Andy Marshall, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Good morning. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's an honor to have you. I I, I want to start with you the same way that I've started with all my guests, and that's just to ask you how you ended up in Amarillo in the first place. So what brought you here? The job. I got recruited. I was in Tulsa for a number of years, and uh, I had a, uh, a recruiter, a retained search recruiter is what it turned out, somebody who had been engaged just to do this job. And... Um, to go find uh, the next CEO for the bank. And they'd been spending about two years prepping for this thing. And apparently they had this profile I didn't know anything about. And the guy called me. And I think on the third time he called me, I kept saying no. The third time he called me, I think I was pretty rude about it. So the next <laughs> time he uh, he actually uh, emailed me and I uh, said, okay. Uh, he, he said the right words. I'll come down there and talk to these folks. And I came down and realized I probably wasted about three visits. I should have done it on the first one. It was a, it was a great gig. What what year was that that they recruited you? They started uh, late January, early February of seventeen. I said I okay. do somewhere in about late October, and started on December the fourth of seventeen. And the reason I remember the date so well was uh, I was succeeding Smith Ellis as the CEO, and Smith was going to leave when he turned sixty five, and his birthday was December the fourth, and I started on December the fourth. So Smith and I joked that I was the president he gave himself. Okay, <laughs> that that's the way to do it. You you don't want to leave until you've got somebody good to fill. Oh your no, shoes, no! I walked right? in on Monday and I expected you know okay we'll have a little transition period because I'm officially regulatory wise I couldn't be the CEO to the first of the year anyway to hand this thing off. I walked into the office. There was an empty desk and there were nails in the wall. Wow, Smith was gone. I'd walk around the bank and somebody would ask for a decision. I said, guys, I don't know what I am but I'm not your CEO to the first of the year. They said, do you see Smith? Smith is retired. He is gone. You better make a decision. What What were you doing in Tulsa? Was it uh, a similar sort of bank? It's a, it, well, it wasn't a similar sort of bank. I've only worked in larger banks mostly. This was Arvest Bank out of Bentonville, Arkansas. Uh, the Walton family is primary owners of it. 
great bank, great footprint. They recruited me out of Arkansas. I'd spent about 10 years in Little Rock, and uh, they wanted uh, their great, their their good presence. Tulsa was the largest market, at least it was when I left. And they wanted to get into large corporate or large commercial. And um, they did a pretty good job, but I don't think they thought of themselves in that way. So that was my job. I came over to take over commercial lending for them. And uh, ended up getting uh, a number of the outlying markets, the market presidents would report up through me. And uh, it was a great gig. I enjoyed it very much. Um, didn't know if that's where I was going to end up or not, uh, or where we needed to end up. But we really liked Tulsa, and I liked the bank. And uh, that's the reason when this guy came calling, I, I don't have time. Yeah. I'm busy. Well, you said you once you got here, you, you kind of figured out you'd you'd been wasting some time not saying yes quick enough. What was it about... Amarillo or First Bank Southwest, like what was it that allowed you to see the light? So quickly? I'll tell you what, Smith. If you've never met Smith Ellis, now Smith is Smith is fully retired. He he has a house in Midlothian, and he's got grandbabies five days a week, so he's fully retired now. But incredibly nice guy. But the Ellis family and what they had built uh, since 1907 was an incredible bank, and I didn't get a chance to spend much time in the bank until I started working for the bank. What I had found based on my research, and I did deep research on this, uh, was it's an incredible organization. The tenure at the bank was incredible. It's it's a rare week that I don't wish somebody 25th or 40th anniversary right, or something. Right, right. What they wanted to do, though, is they wanted to grow. Now, you go around that boardroom and you get 16 definitions for growth, I grant you. But they wanted to grow, and they decided that – with that incredible tenure, the people here at the bank, all they know is this bank the way it is now. So they wanted somebody that had a few bumper stickers. And I have three or four or five bumper stickers <laughs> out here. They wanted somebody to see different things. So for the second time in the entire history of the bank, going back to 1907, I was the first non-family member CEO, or actually the second in all of those years. And the punchline was uh, the first one was fired, so we don't have a very good track record. <laughs> is Is that... <laughs> intimidating coming in to a position like that or is it is it exciting to you like are, are you coming in thinking okay i've got to prove myself or are you thinking all right they want a person like me for a reason and i'm going to come and, and do what they want you better come in and, and pretty much shut up and listen quite a bit mm -hmm. you know i would go around to key staff and stuff and say why am i here and i would just love to hear what they had to say why they thought i was here because they had great internal candidates if they were going to do internal but again, it's the double-edged sword of the tenure. Is uh, you you've been doing something great for thirty years and you're wonderful at it. But if the for you to grow, you're going to have to do something different, and that's not something you've ever had to do before or been exposed to. So, it was listening. In the first two years, my guys were great, but you you could tell it took you know it's a little shakedown cruise for the first couple of years because I, I tried to ease into it, and we used to joke, or at least I used to joke, that uh, the bank thought I was feeding them with a fire hose. To me, it felt like a garden hose in one hand crimped and barely a drip was coming out. <laughs> Did you feel like you had the freedom to come in and start to to make some changes or to suggest some new ideas because it had been, you know, operating within this family-owned mindset with so many long-term employees? It's it's hard to kind of steer a ship that's been going in that direction for, for so long. Did, did you come in and, and think, okay, here's some ideas. How, how do I gradually introduce these? Well, the key there is, is gradually, you've got to get buy-in. Uh, you know, my wife would say, why don't you just do X? I said, well, honey, the problem with doing just X 
is the fix is going to be more disruptive than the problem you were trying to cure mm-hmm. in the first place. So, yeah, they gave me a lot of freedom. Smith, who was a chairman at the time, gave me a lot of freedom. Almost, uh, it was sort of scary how much freedom I was getting out of it. And they were listening to every word I was saying. So you had to be very careful because you could easily do something really bad. It's a matter, you're going to mess up. It's a matter how deep and how squishy. And uh, so, no, I had a lot of freedom and we tried to ease into it. Like I said, they probably thought they were changing every day. And they were in their own minds because they've done things so well, so successfully for so long. But to me, I really wanted to change it on day one, but I knew better. I'd been in different leadership positions. You can't do that. You've got to have buy-in. Tell me about what you found here in Amarillo in terms of, or maybe the panhandle, in, in terms of the, the banking market. Because as I understand it, we're a little bit different here than some places in that we've got, you know, banks like First Bank Southwest and Amarillo National Bank that are owned by generations of, of family members and independent. You've got places like Happy that uh, until recently were in the same place. Is is that is that unique based on your experience where you don't have all this corporate banking influence? Yeah, I guess it is unique. Um, the market is, is, it's changed some, obviously, with Happy and now with uh, First Capital Prosperity buying them. But it was really clubby is the word. If you go down the road to Lubbock, you had 30 or 40 banks and they're competing against each other and it was a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. When you came into this kind of market that's so settled, been, banks been here so long, it's basically... Those are A&B customers. Those are happy customers. Those are First Bank Southwest. Those are whoever in this case, and nobody treads across them. Right. Okay. Yeah. The issue is, is the panhandle has growth, but obviously it's not I-35 and Fort Worth. So there's only X amount of growth. For you to grow the bank over to beyond the growth that happens, you've got to go move customers from other banks. And the problem is they've been with those banks in some cases for multiple generations, and also with that clubby environment, I don't go poach your customers, you don't poach mine. To me, I've not ever been in that environment. And I'm still even today trying to learn how to navigate it. But the, the deal is, is to grow the bank, you access growth, but you've got to move customers. It's just That's any business, not mm-hmm. just ours. Is that competitiveness something that um, that is growing in Amarillo? I mean, with, with some of the acquisitions, with the happy situation, like are, are, are those walls kind of starting to, to disappear a little bit? Well, let, let's just say that we're having a market moment okay. right this minute. Centennial comes in and, and buys happy. And, uh, you know, you could feel in the market that it, it – I would have liked for it to have been handled differently just from being a community person, but it's the way it is. Uh, So anyway, in those market moments, you hate it for the community that you see an institution like Happy being changed, but as a competitor bank, this is your time to actually make a move because, remember, these people, once it settles down, they're going to be there for a generation in some cases. So that's what we've seen. You've seen other banks come into the market and poach Happy people for that intent. This is their time to move into a market that before they couldn't elbow their way into. And now you see First Capital, Prosperity has bought First Capital. First Capital is a great bank, but they only had like 1.13% of the market here, which is still pretty significant. So, But there will be market moments out here. Those relationships that have been with these people for a long time, they don't want to go through this. Mm-hmm. Changing banks and doing that is, is a pain. 
But this is the one time that you can do it is when you have those market moments. And we and everybody else are trying to access that. Have you seen a lot of that movement in customers? Oh, on, I mean, not you not even having to go after them. They're just deciding to leave on their own. Oh, I had uh, my uh, one of the retail managers came up and told me today that somebody moved from another bank um, and brought four accounts over the day before. Uh, and the reason they brought it was because they heard that bank actually was promoting some political candidate, and they had a different view, and they just they, they couldn't stand that. So our job as bankers should just shut up and not say anything, be apolitical as much as you can. But you, you're, you're seeing a lot more of that walking in type stuff than you had ever seen before. Now, it's slowed down some, I grant you. The one thing that's that's been that's been helpful, uh, if you will, to these banks that are moving into the market, or at least the ones that are buying into the market, is the fact that with the rising rates, the existing loans of out there were mostly booked when Prime was three and a quarter. Mm-hmm. Well, Prime's six and a half, and later today will probably be something like seven and a quarter. Those existing loans, you can't move them because the rates are going to be so high. You, so you got to wait for them to mature. So you got to pick at the other parts of the relationship. So that's really helped these banks that have bought in, just purely luck of timing. Tell me about First Bank Southwest and the role that it plays within the local banking environment. Like, is, is there a personality, you think, or a part of the culture that that sets it apart from, from maybe some of the competition here? Well, you know, I talked about before about tenure, you know, and all banks say the same thing and they mean it. They're sincere. Like, they mean... The difference is our people, and the difference is our people. Let me answer the question this way. The bank I found was incredibly sound, and it had a warmth about it, and that tenure that we talked about before. But when you would ask what the culture was, nobody could say. They said, yeah, we got a great culture. Cool. What is it? Yeah. Well, I, well, I don't know, but it's a it's a good culture. I said, well, if you had to say what it is, tell me what it is. Well, I don't know, but it is good. So we spent the first two years in a deep dive into culture. And the point was, was we went to every single employee of this bank and says, okay, tell me why you're here. What keeps you here? What do you value? What do you want us to do going forward that we're not doing now? And we put that together, and we spent a lot of time and a lot of money doing this. And what we came out of this is all we're doing was taking the values that they had and the values they want to have and drilling those things down into what we came up with, which was six core values, four guiding principles, but the overarching precept of faith family bank. And I've had people say, that's a great motto. No, no, no. You misunderstand. This is where I was saying... I believe the difference is based on my road-weary experience is Faith Family Bank is is not a motto we use. It's a guideline with how we do business, hopefully how we live life, Mm -hmm. that when you can take all of that wonderful value stuff that we put together and boil it down, if you live Faith Family Bank, and I don't care what your faith is, but you've got to have a moral compass or you're never going to get to where you're going in the first place. But if you will live it and boil it down into Faith Family Bank as a guideline, that's what we try to do in every decision we make. Up to the including as goofy as this, or maybe it sounds goofy, I don't know. But the point is, is we want to purposely live those things in everything we do, and we want the community to feel it at the same time. Our annual reviews, our performance reviews, now are only based, you're graded only on those six values. That's it. Hmm. How well do you live and perform those six values? 
And the point was, as you looked around this bank with all of that tenure and all that gray hair, or in my case, no hair, uh, you said, okay, all of these wonderful people are going to retire. We're going to have to promote people. We're going to have to hire people. Some aren't going to fit. Possibly we're going to have to terminate people. So every hiring checklist, promotion checklist, termination criteria, everything we do, acquisitions, when we look at combining cultures together, everything is built on purposely following those values and that faith family bank uh, in everything we do. That's That, to me, is our difference. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it bleeds out and customers feel it. I believe so. I get that kind of feedback, but we try to be better at it every day. Now, whether we're successful, that's not for me to say. Tell me how you got into banking in the first place. What's the story? Oh, God. I, I forest gumped in a lot did you, of stuff. I mean, did you dream about it as a kid? Someday I went yes, to Yes, that's what I was world. doing. <laughs> Whoa, that was a weird childhood if I was dreaming about banking, huh? Let me give you my story here, and I'll try to move this thing down a little bit. No, I didn't dream of banking. Banking's actually my third career. Okay. I came from outside of banking, and there's a surprising number of people that have. First of all, my first career was in the military. I'd, I got out of high school. I went to college. I didn't really have any plan in mind. I went to college because my mother told me to go to college. I played baseball, so I wanted to go play baseball. So I went to a community college. I'm originally from Tupelo, Mississippi, so okay. I went to a local community college, which is a very mature system they have in Mississippi. Played baseball, really, you know, did fairly well in college, but it wasn't because I tried to do very well in college. And, uh, you know, got to my sophomore year, was uh, working to walk on at Ole Miss, which is where I was trying to go. And somewhere in the middle of that, I ended up in an Air Force recruiter's office. And I can't tell you exactly why I walked into this guy. But when I walked in there, I saw that his name on the door was Tech Sergeant Looney. That should have told me, go to the other door. (laughs) But uh, I didn't really. Next thing I know, I'd sign up for the Air Force, and I still didn't know what I wanted to do. Did you have military service, like in your family background, or anything? Uh, like yeah, that? my father was in the Army during Korea. Okay, um, National Guard that got activated into active duty. Um, so there was some influence. Maybe. Yeah, there, there was some influence, but I'd never grown up saying I'm going to be a soldier someday. And I ended up uh, doing this with no package, no contract, and I would never let anybody do that again. So I go to basic training in Lackland Air Force Base, Texas, and uh, they give me a battery of tests. They said, okay, uh, we're going to put you in the security service. And uh, I was sent to Goodfellow down in San Angelo to take crypto training. Uh, I was in in buildings that had no windows with concertina wire around it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were doing crypto type stuff. I was learning about it. Now, define crypto because people are going to hear that and they're going to think cryptocurrency. That's uh, codes, not what you're code breaking about. type yeah, stuff, okay. if you will. And this was what the nineteen. This was uh, nineteen seventy nine. Seventy nine. Okay. Seventy nine. So I was in the summer of seventy nine. I was in uh, San Antonio, Texas, and really like San Antonio, by the way. The people down there remind me of here, authentic salt of the earth. Um, had been out there for a few months. Was actually doing very well, but I talked to some people that had been in this kind of business for a long time. And it really, truly sounded boring. You're sitting in an office all day long in buildings with no windows and said, this is no fun. And I had the opportunity presented to me to change career AFSCs, Air Force Specialty Codes, like MOSs in the Army. And they were looking for Air Force, what was then called security police. It's called security forces now. I hated to throw away four or five months or whatever it was uh, of crypto, but I said, sure, I want to do it. I just didn't feel right here. So next thing I know, I'm back at Lackland, and I'm going through this, and I love it. 
I mean, back in that day, security police had two elements. You had uh, law enforcement, which was like an MP, you know, traffic stops, bar brawl type stuff. Like on base, right? Yeah, like on base. I was in uh, the security side, which was mostly uh, asset protection. That would be planes, nuclear weapons, weapon systems of all types and stuff. And loved it. It was it was basically Air Force Army is what it was. Okay. So uh, did that and got orders to uh, Homestead Air Force Base, Florida, which no longer exists. Uh, Hurricane Andrew took care of that mm-hmm. in 91. Something's there, but it's not what I was there. And it was in Tactical Air Command. I'd been there about 15 seconds. I got there in September. And by October, we uh, they wanted to go to a big field problem, a big exercise in North Florida called Bold Eagle. And, uh, I mean, it was a huge joint service. All four services were in there in this big exercise they were doing on Eglin Air Force Base. And, uh, in, you know, basically, here, rookie, come on, let's go. And out of that, I was uh, – I was – came out of that in an organization within uh, security police called Specs. It spells spec, but everybody said Specs. And what spec was, it was security police elements for contingency. We were part of what was then called the Rapid Deployment Force. If there were Air Force personnel or assets anywhere in the world that were threatened or engaged, Mm -hmm. our job was to hop on a C-130 or C-141 and go fix that problem. So I ended up involved with that, and we got deployed in a number of places. And that's where I said I, I forest gumped into so much stuff; it's just ridiculous. And I loved it; I truly did love it, and thrived in it very candidly. And that was during the 1980s. I mean, yeah, that's that was the height the, of the Cold War. There's oh god, I yeah. Imagine all kinds of stuff going on that we, we had all. Yeah, you, if you look at the early 80s, uh, yeah. You say, well, there wasn't a war going on. My friend, let me tell you, there were lots of wars going on. There were little small flash fire things, and they were all around the world. And we were on that, and I I really enjoyed it. Went to all the Army schools and got to go to all the high-speed cool stuff and uh, spent a lot of time with some very high-speed Army units that I really liked and did that for about three years there. I had orders to England, actually extended my enlistment to go to England, and went over to England and continued doing some of that. It wasn't specs anymore. It was out of tack and enjoyed the heck out of it. And the Air Force, and not to get into too much of this, but the Air Force doctrine during Vietnam was uh, they protected themselves up to the base perimeter, and then the Army had everything else. Mm-hmm. After Vietnam, what they had been working on, the reason they came up with stuff like guys like me, was they wanted a 10-kilometer radius, 6.2-mile radius around that air base that we were responsible for. Okay. So that made us Army now, or some Army-related organization. That's what the whole purpose. So uh, we liked it, and I enjoyed it. And then I ended up in Europe and really liked it in England. Had a great tour, and I had orders to Minot, North Dakota. Now, Minot, North Dakota was a missile base. Okay. I mean, I'm talking about snow over your head, and my job out there was on missile fields protecting the missiles. And I'm like, guys, no, 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 no. I want to go back to my buddies. I want to go back to the stuff I was doing before, the high-speed cool stuff. And uh, there was no way to get out of it. So as a result, I just uh, said, I'll take my Tinker Toys and go home. Hmm. So uh, I'd done six years in, and I went home, back to Mississippi, and just spent a couple of months. And I was there, and I said, I want to go back. I, I, I miss it. I miss I was lying in bed thinking about the how purple the mountains of a Birch's Garden, Germany get. Apparently, Hitler and I have the same taste in locations. <laughs> it's really beautiful there, by the way. And uh, so I said, okay, if I'm going to go back, I'm going to do it differently. 
So I went to the Army and says, okay, Army, this is what I would like to do. I want to go back to my buddies, those high-speed guys before. The Army says, no, 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 we don't need you in a Ranger Battalion. We need you doing other stuff. So next thing I know, I'd gone through all the courses and all of this stuff, and I was in Germany in a cavalry regiment that was up on the Czechoslovakian border. Well, the regiment itself actually had parts of the East German border and the Czech border, and it was okay. a hot border at the time. It's Iron Curtain, right? Pure Iron Curtain stuff. We are, we were in 3rd Squadron, 2nd Cavalry, which was on the southernmost part of that front, which went from a portion of Germany all the way down to Passau, which is right at the Austria border. So okay. we had all of that really pretty mountainous, low-level Alpine-type stuff. I'd been there a short period of time, and uh, I was working for the S2, which is the intel side of it, and uh, they'd asked me to be the squadron border officer. Now, honestly, I had not spent much time on the border at that particular time and didn't really understand, so I told the squadron commander, this colonel, that I'd rather not do it. And the colonel says, you know, honestly, uh, young fellow, I don't care what you want. You're it. (laughs) Yes, sir. And really, back to what I said before, the Forrest Gump thing, and and truly enjoyed it. We had a... uh, we had about a 1,300-man squadron, and we were stationed at Amberg, which is, if you know the map in, anywhere, it's between Nuremberg and Regensburg. And then Ford of us on the border, we had two border camps, just basically mini army posts, if you will. And we ran patrols up and down the border. That's what we've done since 1945 when the regiment stopped there at the end of World War II. And uh, so I was over day-to-day operations. That's intel and operations. I had a border operations center and people and stuff like that. But we would bring in different companies, or in the cavalry, we called them troops from various elements, be they cavalry, be they, uh, in some cases, they'd be infantry. I have had special ops guys come in there and spend, and they would spend six weeks on the border running these patrols and stuff. So we had rotating units, and I would be oversee that. They had their own management. They had their own commanders, but I was the guy that sort of overseed all that. And really enjoyed it and um, was trying to decide, do I want to make the Army a career? Mm-hmm. I, I'd already, by this time, I was about 10 years you into it. You say, you had a, a lot of time. Yeah, I got a lot of investment. A small in career, a short career. You know, and, and, I was on a, and I was on a pretty good path. I could have really ended up making a career. What I decided, if I'm going to do this, I want to go back to what I enjoyed the most, which was uh, special operations type stuff. So I found a program that would allow me to move from this Calvary to go to Special Forces Assessment. It's about a three-week course where they put you through heck to see if you've got the guts to hang in there to do the actual qualification course. And uh, the way the Army, I don't know if you had a parent like this, but the way the Army says no is not answer you. So I'd put in these requests, and they just wouldn't answer. And back then, we didn't have emails, and we didn't have cell phones. I was having to get on ham radios trying to call Washington and stuff. This drug out about a year, and finally I said, this is silly. Enough is enough is enough. So I resigned. Hmm. And uh, and at 11 years, I got out. Plus the fact that, honestly, I, I felt I was missing something, you know, life or something like that. I was single. I was so focused on the job. I didn't really date much or anything. I was just felt like I'm missing stuff. So within a year of getting out, I was married with a baby on the way, a mortgage, and two car payments. Wow. Hey, if you're going to get wet, jump in the deep end. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And not to belabor the thing, but I told you I'd tell you sort of my story. So I get out, and I think, okay, I've done a few things in the service. Obviously, people by popular acclamation are going to make me the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. 
Well, after about four or five months of starving, I realized that no, by popular acclamation, you're not going to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You better get a job before you start. So I got a job as an inside salesman for an industrial supply company that like, sells anything that goes into a manufacturing facility. And uh, stayed with the company just because I was just, just got married. I needed steady income, the whole nine yards. And stayed with it over the years through various acquisitions and been with it about 10 years and had moved up in the organization uh, and, a, and a very bright career was in front of me. And uh, I just look around and see some of these old hands have been doing it 30 years. They were popping blood pressure meds. You know, it was 18-hour days. It was horrible. And uh, I had a local bank president who had mentioned or he asked me a couple of times to consider being a banker. I'm like, not a chance. I am not wearing a suit and a tie every day. You've lost your mind. <laughs> I got to work in a polo shirt and a Rockport boat shoe type things. I am not wearing a tie. So I sat down and listened one day. And what the deal was, was at that time, banking somewhere in that period had made the decision. They can't sit behind a desk and pop their suspenders anymore. Mm -hmm. They've got to go out and actually market themselves. They hate saying sell, but they have to sell themselves. Yeah. And the, the question was, is... Uh, do we take salesmen and make them bankers, or do we try to take bankers and make them salesmen? They never fully figured it out, but they said, okay, we'll work on that question. But what we acknowledge is, is we truly don't know how to manage a sales process. So I had the skill set to do everything, except I didn't know banking. So next thing I know, uh, I'm running a branch, and I've got lenders in there, and Jason, I don't know the first thing about banking. They put me through a six-week crash course to make sure I wouldn't steer us off the thing. But I came in from zero to learn banking. And I was in there just a couple of seconds and said, I like this. Hmm. I didn't know anything. And the bank I was at, I knew it wasn't going to be the bank I retired at. But what I found was, at least in Mississippi at that time, you said doctor, lawyer, and banker in the same sentence. And something about that whole solid citizen feel was just, it was intoxicating. I loved it. And uh, I went into a bank that was a very good, well-established bank that sold itself to another bank that 13 months later sold itself to another bank, which was a, I mean, big product pusher. You've heard the Wells Fargo stories, unrelenting pressure. So I said, I don't like this bank, but I love banking. So uh, I took a transfer after just a couple of years to uh, Arkansas with Regions Bank, which was a big super regional bank, still is a big super regional bank, and was up there a couple of years. And I got uh, I got a recruited in to be the chief lending officer for a bank that was then probably about two and a half billion. I think when I left, it was about three and a half billion. Statewide bank in Arkansas, incredibly good bank. Really enjoyed it. We we were there for about ten years. I say we myself, my wife and I were there for about ten years. Really liked Arkansas. It was good to us. We were very good to it, and uh, incredible organization. But what I, it was an organization that was family-owned, and I got to the point where the only people above me were, were the family. Yeah. Three sons and a dad. And uh, there was no movement after that. And, they, you know, they, they, wanted, they owned 100% of the bank, and they didn't want to really share any of that with stock and stuff. And I said, so my options are I'm in a great position. I could stay here for the next 15 years, or I can – I was getting recruited pretty hard at the time. I'm going to do something else. If I stay here, they're just going to wake me up in 15 years, give me a go watch and say, you're retired. Yeah. Said, okay, cool. So I did go talk to a few banks that recruited. I had a statewide non-compete. 
and ended up with, as I mentioned earlier, Arvest Bank out of Tulsa. Uh, incredibly well run. We did a lot of good work. It still continues to do a lot of good work. And we we truly like Tulsa. So we were there about six years, like I said, when these, when these guys came calling. And this has been December the 4th will be five years. I had somebody, I told somebody that the other day, and I said, good gravy. I thought it was only been about two years. Yes. <laughs> Uh, this is our last stop. Okay. I always tell people, you know, we got on I-40 about 20 years ago and decided to head west. We're not going to Albuquerque. Amarillo, Texas is where we're going to retire from Amarillo, Texas in seven years and two months. Tell me what you've discovered about, maybe not the banking environment here, but about the city itself, about Amarillo. Having moved here and, and gotten so involved, you know, in the business world, what have you learned? I mean, was, was Amarillo on your radar before you came this way, did you think you knew much about the the community? Uh, very candidly, and please don't anybody beat me up over saying this, but uh, I couldn't have found Amarillo on a map. Okay. Uh, That's Amarillo, fair. Yeah, mm-hmm. Amarillo was a place in, in both Oklahoma and Arkansas, you'd see the sign, something about a big stake, you know, 300 miles that way or something. <laughs> That's all I knew about Amarillo. Um, no, I didn't know anything about it. And when I got here... It was interesting. We, as I've said before, Denise and I have lived a few places, but this is the first one that she and I both had just an immediate emotional connection with. And it was both of us. Normally it'd be, I would connect and I would sort of sell her on the community or whatever it may be. No, 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 no. We both connected. And I wish I could tell you exactly what it was, but I, I, my best stab at it is that the people here are the most authentic People, good, bad, left, right, whatever you think about them, they are who they are. They are salt of the earth, and you know exactly where you stand with these folks, and they're very good people, and they will go out of their way to do anything for you, give the shirt off the back. And that's what we found when we got here, and that's what we love about the community, and we continue to love about the community. And I mentioned retiring. You know, when I got here, the bank says, we want 10 to 12 years. Mm -hmm. And I said, what a coincidence. I'm going to work 12 more years. So from day one, I gave them a stated retirement date, 12-31-2029. We're going to hoist some champagne. I'm going to throw the keys to ever who the board tells me to throw the keys to, and Denise and I are going to do something else. And uh, and we're we're five years into it, and we're going to be here at least through the seven years, and we've had a great time, and I can't imagine it's going to be any different going forward. Hey, Amarillo is supported this week by Pestex Pest Control. Ben with Pestex sprayed my house just a few weeks ago. You know, a a lot of folks probably think you don't have to spray for bugs in the winter because it's too cold for them. And that's true outside, but here's what happens. Sometimes they just go dormant in cold weather. They lay low and they wait for a nice warm spring day to come out. And, you know, spiders do this. And spiders can be a problem inside your house during the colder months. And that's pretty much all my family needs to hear. So Ben comes and he gets rid of those spiders. Pestex is locally owned. They use pet-friendly products and they don't have a one-size-fits-all approach. They'll evaluate your pest problem and figure out how to solve it. To get in touch, call or text 806-433-8841 or follow Pestex on Facebook or Instagram. And for the last few weeks of the year, Hey Amarillo is using this space for a special nonprofit highlight sponsored by SKP Creative. This week's nonprofit is Elevate Amarillo, a community group of young professionals who include some of the brightest minds in the panhandle. Elevate provides networking, mentorship, and other professional development opportunities, including, and I really do like this, including a focus 
on helping members learn to become valuable board members or volunteers with nonprofits. Elevate connects them with those organizations that fit their passions and interests. If you're between the ages of 20 and 40 and you want to get involved, learn more at elevateamarillo.org. And I want to say thanks again to SKP Creative for spotlighting this organization. Okay, I'm back with Andy Marshall of First Bank Southwest. Andy, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight. Should I be afraid? Uh, well, you know, it, it uh, probably not. Um, <laughs> it just depends on what you've heard of, of other people answering these probably. same questions. Probably. I like that. Okay. Uh, Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes photos of English Field, the first commercial airport in Amarillo, which opened in 1929. It was replaced by a more modern airport in 1972. Uh, you can learn more and see some of those photos at panhandleplains.org. Okay, the first question uh, is one I've been asking a lot recently, and it's when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, or maybe seven years from now, because that's when you're going to retire. What do you hope for? Well, first of all, I'll always be an Amarillo. So what I hope for is that uh, Amarillo has finally accessed its potential you know, even in my short tenure here, and I, I, I don't mean this to be patronizing, I've seen I've seen multiple opportunities for this thing to grow and become what it could be. And what I see is I see some very powerful people doing a lot of infighting, and as a result, not as much gets done. Hmm. In 10 years, I would hope that Amarillo understands they have a moment in time here, and they have something that their competitors, if you want to call Lubbock a competitor, Lubbock cannot duplicate I-40. Sure. And with I-40 and you got Albuquerque that way and you've got Dallas this way, we could be a much bigger, much more vibrant force in this part of the world than we are now if people will just sort of get their heads right, if you mm-hmm. will. I, I think some of that infighting is is from a group of people, and, and maybe it's small, just small and noisy, that, that don't want Amarillo to get bigger. They, they don't want to see that growth because they feel, well, it might change you know, the Amarillo that I love. Um, I've always been of the opinion that if you're not if you're not growing, then you're you're probably in the process of dying, and so that's that that hasn't made sense to me. But I, like in some of the communities you've you've lived in, have you have you seen that mindset, or have you pushed up against that? Yeah, I've seen the mindset, but I've also seen market moments. I, I mentioned Forrest Gump. I Forrest Gumped into some revitalization when I was in Little Rock downtown on the the river wall or riverfront area there. The development on both sides of the river, North Little Rock and Little Rock, I was there just when they decided they were going to do something, and how cool that is now. I move into Tulsa. Tulsa starts revitalizing the whole Brady District area up on the north side of town, and how cool and how vibrant. And when they put in this park, the gathering place, if you've never been to Tulsa and seen this, it's incredibly cool. Uh, George Kaiser, I think, dropped about $400 million of his own cash in there. The, the cool things, the revitalization just in my time there. And I came down here and I see that I saw it happening because I came down here just as they were about to start Hodgetown and right. some other stuff. And I'm saying, great, I've got another one of these Forrest Gump moments. And then it sort of stopped and stalled. Hmm. And I just, man, can we, can we start this back up again? Can we go to where this place could logically go? Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? Dirt. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> no, you're you're no, accurate. Oh, no. Now, you took wind. That's the best one. Uh, I will tell you, very orange cones. It okay. has too many orange cones. I've been here for five years, and I've never driven down I-40 to my house that I didn't pass orange cones. Let's get it finished someday. Mm-hmm. 
I think locals will tell you we longed for that construction for probably decades. There were never any cones. And we're like, this stuff needs to be fixed. And so finally the money came in for it. And now we're just in the eternal process. Of yeah, I'm dodging it. orange so, cones yeah, every day. None of us are happy. <laughs> what does this area not have enough of? That's a great question. I'll go back to, back to my little preachy mode here. It needs it, it needs to align its thought. It needs more shared vision. I think we have sort of the vision. It's the pathway to get to the end of that vision. Mm-hmm. That's what we need more of. I think we need more more working together, if you will. And I and maybe we'll get there. Hopefully, we will. You've you've got a lot of unique leadership experience. You know, going back to the military and 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 as a CEO, like how do you get? Diverse groups of people to all kind of move forward well, in the same all, direction. You get them in. You first of all, you get them into a room and you acknowledge their differences. Once you do that, you get everybody in the room. Let them air out their grievances. Let's air and say, okay, here's the goal. How how can we as this new eclectic group figure out how to get from where we are to where we need to go? And then once you do that, when you get everybody facing in the same direction and they understand that, that's when you can make things happen. But you've got to get them in a room and acknowledge the differences. Okay. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Soft of the earth people, absolutely authentic. I've had friends come in from like a Tulsa or something. They drive by and the wind's wrong. And I would say, oh yeah, that's, that smells like money. You know, I've done the whole thing. Uh, I tell them that we enjoy it. It's a hidden jewel. You may not realize what you're passing through till you get here. But uh, uh, the difference in Amarillo is always going to be the people, their authenticity, that salt of the earth, that resilient work ethic that it doesn't matter what the weather does or what the economy does or what the world does or the wars do. By golly, they get up and put their pants on in the morning and they go to work. Hmm. What's your favorite local neighborhood? Well, I live in the colonies and I like it, so I'm going to go colonies. Okay. Is it uh, is that where you've lived since you moved here? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we bought a place over in Patriot, and we we've always liked it. Okay, it's a it's a unique uh, area. There's a lot of lot of nice walking paths and stuff that felt pretty new when it was introduced here. Yeah, it's uh, my wife uses those walking paths a lot. I've used them a lot less in the last couple of years, as my waistline <laughs> will show you. What's your favorite local restaurant? Ooh, you've got tough questions here. Okay, first of all, Jurasaw, uh, but okay. with qualifiers. If we're going to go out to dinner, OHMS, but I have to say Metropolitan is sneaking up the list pretty okay. quickly. That's a variety of different parts of town. Yes, it is. Downtown and then over on the southwest but side. But we, we love to go to, we go to breakfast at, uh, at Girasol every weekend. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic breakfast I, It's Girasol, but I, everybody says Girasol, so I'll do that. Just local pronunciation. Yeah, that's always go. fine. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Roasters is where I would first go to if I had them lined up or something. I'm, Scooters is not bad. This new line that's coming in, Scooters. Mm-hmm. My wife, uh, she likes the Grindstone. She she and her okay. Pilates buddies or girlfriends, they go to the Grindstone over at, uh, uh, what, Coulter and Hillside. Hillside or something mm-hmm. like that. I have, I've yet to try it myself. Okay. And when was the last time you visited Paladura Canyon? A year, I guess, something like that. We've got uh we got relatives coming in for Thanksgiving, so we'll be down there not only at Paladir, but we want to take them out to Cap Rock so the kids can see the buffaloes yeah. and stuff. So ask me again in about three or four weeks, and I'll tell you where. It was. <laughs> I'm I'm always interested in people uh, who didn't know much about Amarillo, and then what it was like to sort of discover that there's this giant. Who canyon knew here. this was here? My son came here the first time, and who's he's grown, and he said, "So this is where you take levels to be trued up." He saw how flat it was, and we carried him. We carried him down to the canyon. He goes, "Whoa! I had no idea this was here." 
Okay, well, that concludes, Andy, the uh, eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? Well, first of all, you, you absolutely have a jewel in Amarillo. Hopefully you know that. Hopefully I'm telling you something you already know. But you also have a moment in time to where Amarillo has the opportunity to become much better than it is now, and it's good now. Um, I will say this, that I bought, as an investment, I bought some timberland back in Mississippi where I'm originally from here recently. And the forester I used was at Amarillo Air Force Base in the 60s. Wow. And he said, so you live at Amarillo? He says, there's nothing there. Oh, no forests. Yeah, that was his experience in the mid-1960s. He thought, there's nothing here. I said, well, come see it now. And I just try to describe them. This is a vibrant community. But boy, I tell you what. With the cool stuff that we have, the, all the projects and the employers coming in and stuff, this is a great time if we make it a great time. If we don't, it'll still be a great community, but I don't know that it'll live up to its potential. Okay. Andy Marshall, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I, I appreciate, appreciate it. you having me. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Andy Marshall for the interview. You can find out more about First Bank Southwest at fbsw.com. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode. And you know what? If, if you like this show, here's my one request for you. Please consider rating and reviewing it wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a really easy step. It helps other people find the show. And I just, I appreciate it. Also want to say thanks to sponsors Pestex Pest Control, Leslie Massey Farmers Insurance, SKP Creative, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting Hey Amarillo. The Hey Amarillo podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. And I really do appreciate these folks. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Corey Burns, Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witt. This has been episode 276. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.